These are the stories of The 116, a podcast from the heart of the First United Methodist Church in downtown Peoria, Illinois. This is where belief becomes action and action brings hope. Here's your host, Greg Fish. And we welcome you back to yet another edition of Stories from the 116. This is episode number 11, and my guests today are Reverend Tanya Edwards-Evans, who is an associate pastor on staff at First United Methodist Church in Peoria. Pastor, welcome in this morning to you. And uh, also, uh, Dr. Carol McPherson, who is the Director of Fine Arts and Discipleship. I Every time I hear your title, Carol, I just... It's just a t- I get tired of just saying it. That I can't imagine how you accomplish all of that. <laughs> it's like almost like magic, isn't it? Oh yes, yes. It's a long title. Well, uh, we want to invite you to uh, be f- uh, sure to like and share. I, I think this is going to be a particularly important podcast for liking and sharing on social media. We would encourage you to do that. Also, to leave a good review on your podcast provider. Those things are greatly appreciated and help us to get the message out to more people. So I guess you could say we are just kind of in different times uh, trying to negotiate that we've been through the, uh, this, this COVID crisis. And uh, just as we, we think that maybe we start to see the light at the end of the COVID crisis, another crisis that really we've probably gotten good at ignoring until it makes itself known has brought itself back to our attention. And that is uh, how do we as, as believers in Jesus properly speak into the um, the racial tensions that are around us. And um, first of all, I just want to say, uh, Pastor Tanya, I am just absolutely thrilled to think of you as a friend and to be on staff with you. Uh, you are just a delight to know. And I want to affirm you in every way possible to say, uh, I can't think of a better guest to help us to think through this than you. And I am so appreciative of having you here with us today. So thank you for being willing to give your time for this important topic. And um and uh, Carol, you're along to kind of help also bring some um, additional thought to how we can process some of the ideas we're going to be thinking through today. One of the things that I, I thought would be good for us to uh, do is approach this as, as we are sitting at a table, because I think we're not very good at doing some of the needed uh, heart and mind change uh, when we're standing, because those those can be confrontational. But when we're at a table, we sit, we're... we're um, uh, kind of vulnerable to each other. And tables are a place of nourishment. So we also nourish ourselves at a table. So we welcome you to a table this morning. And I, I also suspect that a lot of people listening to this podcast will come with the same question that I do. And that is, how can I do anything good that matters? And um, I think, let's just be honest, probably we come with a degree of defensiveness uh, to this issue. Um, I was listening to a podcast earlier this day from Erwin McManus. Are either of you familiar with Erwin McManus? He's a, he's a Latino pastor who serves a, a multicultural congregation in Los Angeles. And he reminded me of this idea in scripture that power is given so that we can serve. And it's throughout scripture, you see with David, how powerful and ferocious he was, and yet he had a servant heart. And even Christ, the greatest role model of all, exemplified that when he was washing the disciples' feet. And Peter says, whoa, 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 don't do that for me. And, and uh, Christ says, now, wait a minute. If you don't let me do this for you, you don't really get who I am. Because uh, he was indicating his power was there to serve others. So power is the privilege of being able to serve others. And that just really helped my heart to get, I think, in a good place for understanding uh, this topic today as well. And that is that um, the power we have is given to us to serve 
others. So, uh, Pastor Tanya, let me just kind of start here and say, first of all, um, what yet another crisis, and, and you've seen this happen over and over again in your life. What was your initial response when the uh, the crisis with Mr. Floyd came to uh, uh, came to our attention through the media? It alarmed me, but not surprised me. Okay. Being that in the last eight months, more than you're aware of the number of people of color who have been shot by police officers in their own yards, in their own houses, mm -hmm. uh, because of this, this fear that has been in our culture, in our society, of, about people of color. Mm -hmm. And what you see, especially for black men, all you see is a black male, a young black male. You don't know anything about them, but because of the fear the society has got you to believe about a person of color, especially men of color, you automatically take the defensive and get protective, and yet you don't know who they are. I've raised two young men who are now in their 30s, but in, in society they're seen as black males. They're not seen as married men with families. They're not seen as college graduates. They're not even seen as who they are, United States Marines. They are seen as black men, and immediately when you see a black male, automatically in some cultures, it's a fear that comes over you that they're out to do something to you. It, was that even present for them even in the Marines? Did they experience that there? Uh, some, in some cases, but it, wasn't, it, it was kind of hidden. But when it got known, you got pulled to the side about it because the Marine Corps, any, Navy, any military branch, you are your brother's six. It's all about all of you surviving together, mm -hmm. regardless of where you're from. And they and they teach that and they employ that. That's why it's, I always say always once a Marine, always a Marine. Once you're in the military, you have a family of people that are going to watch out for you regardless. Even the recruiter said, oh, no worry, I will bring him home to you in one piece. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you sign this piece of paper. <laughs> uh, and so, because my oldest was... Uh, Son was 17 when he graduated from high school, so I had to have his. They had to have my signature, and I'm oh. going. Why should I give him to you? And they gave me this deal about it's about a family, but what we have to do is combat the fear about uh -huh. people of color, mm -hmm. and give me a moment because I'm a lover of history. Sure. If you look at American history, it has always been seasoned with people of color who have done something to help society be what it is. From the Native Americans teaching us how to farm from the beginning to the labor of people of color and our Hispanic to harvest the crops, even to our technology. The cell phone that we love so much was created by a black scientist, but yet we have a fear of a black person or persons of color. It's more of about disparity of the ethnic groups than it is anything, but we have taught this fear. Mm. And my illustration about this fear of racism is simply this, sweeping the dirt under the rug. I'm going to get it later. Let me sweep it under here till now. Sooner or later, it's going to be enough dust under the rug that the rug never lays back on the floor because you've constantly mm. <laughs> mm. swept it under the rug. I'll get to it later. I'll get to it later. We wow. have been getting to this racism issue 
since I was born. I was born in the middle of the 60s. So we've been struggling with this issue since the mid-40s, late 40s, forward. But we keep sweeping it on the rug. We'll get to it later. We'll get to it. Mm. And here where we are now. That fear has been perpetuated. And my favorite theologian, Howard Thurman, said, hatred is not an inborn behavior, it's a learned behavior. So how do we unlearn? Yes. John Wesley said unlearn it. So how do we go about unlearning that fear? And, you know, I think the conversation has started to really turn in that direction that please help us to learn how to turn from our fear and from our, you know, what, what do we need to do to get to where we need to be? Now, you've, you're in a really unique situation. You came from Mississippi, the southern, well, right, the southernmost point of Mississippi, is that right? Or, yes, uh-huh. all, the all the way up here to the Arctic North, <laughs> <laughs> uh, to, to Peoria. And, and you went from a situation where you were pastoring, uh, I, I'm assuming pretty much all African-American right. congregations right. Uh, to a situation where you were one of the fewer African-American faces in the congregation. Now we have a, we have a, a good mix. We have a lot of Latinos in the congregation as well, but um, what was that like for you? What was that experience just in your gut like? Uh, like a fish out of water. Okay. Being unfamiliar and not completely unfamiliar, but just out of water. I went mm. to a, uh, racially balanced high school. I went to a predominantly white college and so and grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood. <laughs> so uh, it I've seen it, but I also have I come from a family of mixed cultures. So some of this I've seen growing up because of the family mixture. And my my concern is our children now who are coming from mixed cultures, parents, what are they learning from us? Okay. And biblically, we have been told to tell the next generation the story. And as people of faith and as people of color, we have failed to tell the story. Mm. God gave us two things that we're supposed to do, love him with our whole heart and love our neighbors as ourselves. But he also told us, how can you love me whom you've never seen? And hate your brother you see every day. If we are going to be people of faith, the scripture is our guideline on how to react to what is going on. And sometimes don't react because then we overreact. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we need to just be still and God will give you the direction. But we run into it instead of bagging up and say, okay, what's the real reason for this but nobody's asking that question i don't know about you guys but it's like you know this is a weird time to try to hug somebody for example (laughs) how's the best way to to hug somebody at the time like this the best way to hug is what you have us doing right now okay and that's coming to the table Mm -hmm. Uh, the commission on religion and race of the united methodist church has been asking for the last year let us have crucial conversations around the systemic issues that are hurting our people. Yet we don't want to do it, but we've been called. Mm -hmm. They've been asking churches, let's have those critical heart-to-heart difficult conversations at the table, but yet we are fighting it. We are fighting that. And I don't know if you're aware, I know Dr. Carroll is, 
the Methodist Church has always been on the front line of mending the race, race reconciliation. We have been on the front line all the way back to when we became one church, when we realized one of the mistakes we made did not mirror God's love, and that's creating what we called in the Methodist Church the central jurisdiction, where they put all the black preachers and laity in their own jurisdiction, and then they went out and served across the country. They realized they were not mirroring what God had asked them to do, and they finally dissolved that. But we're still recovering as the Methodist Church from making that that decision mm. because it hurt people in the long run. Even uh, some of you who hear me may know um, Woody White, who became bishop. He was one of the bishops because in the South, churches had peepholes in the door. <laughs> they didn't let him in. And yet he was a resident elected bishop of the United Methodist Church. But we have been on the front line of trying to mend that, coming to the table. How can we mend that? And yet we're still hitting resistance. Uh, and Dr. Carroll, will you be able to tell me why we're still hitting resistance to having that conversation? I can only speak from my chair. Okay. <laughs> and um, as a white person, when you talk about fear of black men, absolutely. But I think what I've encountered in my work here is also a fear of our own racism. You know, that I have to take a look within mm -hmm. and examine my um, assumptions, my fears, my stereotypes. I have to challenge those. And, and there's a can be a real defensiveness around that, about examining things like privilege. So yes, the United Methodist Church has been on the front lines and is recovering from a very bad decision, but individual congregations oftentimes have a really long way to go. And um, so that fear is, is of the other, but it's also, I think, um, speaking as a white person, a fear of what I'm going to discover within myself that is not godly. Mm. You know? Yeah. And, well, you know, I think that's the, uh, the vulnerability that I've had to learn from having come from a background as pastor is to be able to admit that, man, I just really goofed up. And that's been one of the hardest things to do, and it takes people back, but I, that's a good place to be. That's the only place you can start to say, I, I, need, I have something here I have yet to learn. I'm by no means where I need to be yet. How, as a, a black female talking to a white female, how do we examine where we falter? Because even in ourselves, we have this misconception. We, we like to think about they got white privilege, but to some extent, because I grew up with some of my white classmates being called white trash. Okay, so how do we attack this thing about the fear of realizing what we have, our role in it? How do we go about helping with that? The only thing I think we can do is have honest conversations. To sit around the table and be honest with one another, ask hard questions, you know, and, and be willing to listen to one another and how we, um, if each of us examines our own heart, I, I think that um, the, the sense of powerlessness uh, that, well, as a white person, I'm, I feel powerless over what can I do in this situation. Well, 
I think one of the things, the most important thing that I can do is make space for people of color to be heard. It isn't my voice that needs to be heard right now. It is not. And, um, and to bring hard questions around the table, invite people in the congregation into those conversations, because that's where the work starts, is within. It's, it's amazing because somebody called me and said, it is now time for our colleagues, our white colleagues, to stand up and say, let's hear what's going on. Because we've been asking this question for 50 years, and yet they haven't heard us. And they suggested strongly that our white congregations stand up and say, what are we not hearing? Instead of us asking it. <laughs> this is a hard one for me to figure out how to ask. But are we okay asking questions? Like, for example, let me, I asked you a question a couple of weeks ago when you had, had pa- you did a sermon, and I was just kind of curious about the difference between pastoring in, a, in an all-African-American congregation and a white. Our, our question, I mean, is that a good path? If we have honest questions that we're really curious, what, you know, are those good questions yes. to ask? The only way you're going to understand is to ask the question. But we have programmed people not to ask. So they, they, they titter this line of what can I do? What you, The question you asked me had me laugh in my heart and then I laughed out loud because it was unusually asked, but I've been asked for it before, mm. even by black folk. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the difference in Methodist preachers and Baptist preachers. I mean, the whole nine yards. But it's about if you want to know, it's time to ask the question. But the problem is, are you willing to listen? Mm. And I think, I think in addition to being willing to ask the question, is also to be accountable for my own learning. I, I am not to rely on people of color to educate me on how to uh, be not racist. I have to learn. I have to, I have to learn the history. I have to learn what um, bias is and what that looks like and stereotypes. And, you know, so I do have to do the, I, it, it's both. Mm-hmm. I, have to, I have to do the work and do the learning. But I also have to listen and invite um, conversation. Be willing and eh, take a risk, ask a question, and then listen, really listen. I remember a moment when I was asked to speak at the men's group here and you came and to mm-hmm. see them embrace you and hug you was a really great moment for me. Is, are, are you receiving that welcome among us here? Are you feeling welcome uh, as a person of color? Yes. Good. I am. Uh, I kind of startled the men. That was fun. Uh-huh. But I have to remind in the bylaw says pastor is a member of the United Methodist <laughs> Men and a member of the United Methodist Women. We can't show up. And that's when the guys <laughs> dropped their head. <laughs> it was a great moment. It really so, was, yeah. Uh, but it was a beautiful moment. I mean, really, I, it was just a beautiful thing to see. When we are willing to ask the hard question, the next step, what are we going to do about it when we learn something about ourselves? What makes up, The question is, what makes you fearful of a person of color? Where did that fear come from? Now, what do I do about it? Because I'm, I'm a representative of God. And I was told growing up, 
I may be the only Bible somebody reads. So what am I showing the world as a believer when it comes to somebody who's different from me? Whether it be skin color, the way they think, or even their upbringing. What am I? What am I mirroring? And I think um, the thing is we need to have those, those critical conversations. When we're able to come together, we need to have those critical heart-to-heart conversations. And then what would be my plan? Not the church's plan, but each of us, how do we open that door to be less threat, feel, feel less threatening by somebody of color? So how do we do that? What are your thoughts on that? Well, one is to be aware of where your fear comes from. Two, do the work. Um, I'll put on, I'll give to you a list of books that they can read. Also, the resources from the United Methodist Women, because they have done a detailed list of resources on this issue. And then, of course, the General Commission of Religion and Race. But we have to educate ourselves and then be aware where our isms are. <laughs> mm-hmm. Where 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 are isms? Because it's not always race. It could be a gender issue. The disparities in our culture are drawn on race, but disparities anyway, whether it be education, incarceration, housing, the disparities are there. But what do we do about them? And I think that... Um when you ask that question, what can we do about it? So, as you said, be aware. Chat for me, challenge it within myself. And oftentimes, if there's another person, a white person, because I'm, I think that that's, it's inappropriate to go to a black person and say, you know, I just saw such and such, and it made me feel thus and such. You know, mm-hmm. no, but but I think saying it out loud and naming it, you know, those words hang in the air. Mm. You know, I saw this person and I thought this, and then I realized that um, those words hang in the air and I see them. And and so um, the prayer is that the more I do that, the less I do it. Mm -hmm. The more I name it, recognize it, then the less it's going to happen. And so I have to I have to be responsible for for name recognizing it and naming it, and I have to be willing to do things like speak up when someone uh, makes a racist joke Mm -hmm. or what they call microaggressions to name it, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and to do that in a way that fits within who I am. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm not the person that's going to be in your face and belligerent, but, but I've had some opportunities to be able to say, you know, you just said such and such. And I, I wonder if you might want to rethink that because this is how it can be heard. You know, that's pretty soft. Yeah, but. <laughs> but, but I've actually witnessed Dr. Carroll even doing that. But, but she politely let somebody know that, do you know how that would have been perceived? Mm-hmm. And so, but she wasn't threatening. She just wanted them to recognize their language. And one of the things about racism is we got to start watching our language because words mean different things in different places. So we have to be very cautious 
but we it starts with us. And, and that's the hard part. Mm. We've got to start with us. Okay. We can't change anybody else until we work on <laughs> us. And then God changes the people around us because after he's changed us. And that's where this, that's where we are now. Nobody wants to do the hard work. Nobody wants to sit down and say, what, what can we do? What should we be doing? Because we don't need to continue sweeping this under the rug, which is what our culture and society has done for the last 55 years. And I got to be honest, social media can be a powerful tool. But doing the hard work does not mean posting stuff on Facebook or filling (laughs) your Facebook feed with just black images, you know, or... Um, yes, we can use it to speak out against, but that's really not the hard work. Facebook is not taking a stand. <laughs> if you post it on Facebook, it's, you're not taking a stand. You're just verbalizing or putting it out there. Yeah, yeah. That's a, such a good point. But I also think that um, I, it can be a tool. And so as I've reflected throughout this, um, asking myself, you know, liking or sharing something or posting something, really, is it my voice that needs to be heard? Or are there voices from people of color who really do need to be heard? And maybe those are the ones that I can share. Not not my voice, but their voices, because so often people of color are left voiceless. We had a really good conversation the other day, and you were very helpful to me on something because... Um, I confess, I don't do well socially with anybody who is different than me. Not, I mean, whether they're a person of color, just anybody who is, is, is a different Welcome person. Welcome to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I struggle with it. And so uh, I, I mentioned to you, and I thought you gave me some really good advice if you would want to expand on this, because I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if this is the same question that some of our listeners have. And that is, I have a neighbor who's African-American, and um, I've struggled to figure out how do I show them that I care about them because I'm not an outgoing person. It's not an easy thing for me to do. What is the best thing that I can do for my neighbor at this time to make sure they know that I care about them and I'm standing with them? First of all, first of all, this this simple hospitality, Uh, just as we were talking and you saw their children playing in Dirt that had glass in it. You could see the glass. They too busy digging as boys. They ain't seen none of that. Mm-hmm. You yelled and said, there's glass in it, and they bagged up. You weren't threatening. You just let them know where they were playing around and had glass in it. Mm-hmm. It's just simply recognizing and, and, and with a tone of voice that is caring, no yelling. Look, unless you got to get a kid's attention, but just like talking with uh, the older son, who sees you grill all the time. Mm-hmm. Now y'all having conversations over the grill. Yeah, yeah. And so it's about just spending time and having conversation. And I told you when he comes and asks you how you do this, you answer how you did it. Mm-hmm. You know, because you know, every time some things on the grill stick, how you get asparagus don't stick? Because they're <laughs> going to ask. Uh-huh. Take the time to answer the question. Yeah. Don't just overlook them. I'm from the South, so you speak to everybody. You don't always <laughs> hug everybody, but say hello to everybody. Even if they don't answer back, you have recognized them in your space. Mm-hmm. And trust me, it will win over. <laughs> uh, 
because you're just simply saying hello. Eventually they will answer back, but on their time. But that's not your responsibility. It's theirs. You notice mm-hmm. them there. And too many people walk by us and we never notice they there. So the simple hello, and if they ask you why you're grilling that and why what you put on it, answer the question. Mm-hmm. Because then you're going to be building a friendship wow. with them. We don't worry about the rest of that stuff. It's one person at a time. Yeah. And, Greg, you and I had a conversation about your neighbors and how your struggle to connect um, with the mother, and yet the kids just seem to be very willing to come up and have conversations with you, and so you're building relationships with them. And that goes a long way for a mom when they Mm -hmm. see that. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. just keep doing that. Because Uh if they're aware of you being there, if something happens, they're going to know, oh, he at home, (laughs) and they'll run to you. If they see something, they don't understand, but they know you're going to talk to them straight out. One thing about children is as long as you're honest with them, they're fine. But trust me, they are going to develop a friendship, and they're going to probably start telling you stuff they wouldn't tell mom and dad. (laughs) Can I talk to you about something? Cause that's their favorite. Can I? Can oh I, yes, yes. <laughs> wait, oh, I got wait, wait. Or something else, wait. Because <laughs> they're gonna say, "Can I talk to you?" Yeah. And long as you take that moment mm-hmm. to, to hear them, you're gonna change the way they do life. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I I think maybe one of the big obstacles there is the the, the natural human obstacle of of just our own uncertainty about ourselves, our own feelings of our own inadequacy to deal into a situation. So. Let's move this to a little bit bigger frame then, and that is to say when the church does open back up and we start gathering together, what are some proactive things that as our people walk this door that we can do to uh, express the love of Christ and the worth of all people who enter into these doors? Ooh. One, we have to remind people that we're also about their safety and to enter these doors because there's going to be practice. The bishop that already mentioned it. You're going to have to enter with with a mask on. There are going to be sanitizers everywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, We may not be able to pick up a hymn book for a while. (laughs) We may not be able to sing for a while, but doesn't mean you're not part of the family. I'm used to folk yelling people from across the street. We can have a conversation from across across the road. Older women would be at the cross the road, and they're constantly having a conversation. Two hours later, they're still in the same two spots. (laughs) Across the road from each other. It just means they matter, mm-hmm. but things are going to change. And one of the things I know from my, from being here and from growing up, we don't like change, but this change is going to be probably one of semi-permanent for a while. Whether we like it or not, the way we do church, I should say the way we do worship, mm-hmm. and the way we gather is about to change. God is not changing. <laughs> He has to change us to get us back in line. Let's see what God is doing in this. What's the new thing God is doing? Maybe he needs you to look at yourself. With this pandemic and this racial tension, maybe it's time to do some self-examination. Am I really out living out the principles of a believer, of loving my neighbor as I love myself? Am I taking care of God's order, created order, or am I abusing the things God has given me? 
because I think I have the right to do it. When we open these doors, it is going to be a new attitude. But God is the same. God's love never yes. ends. Yes. And we've got to look at our parameters. Why are we not being who God called us to be? Pastor, I, I, I know that I, I'm not going to be foolish enough to, to, to say that I speak for all white people, but I, I just this opportunity just once again breaks my heart, and I, am, I just feel so repentant of attitudes that I've had in me that I realize aren't healthy, good attitudes. And um, I think this is a good opportunity for us to each one do that with each other is that repentance and that honesty, like you said, that calling it what it is. And I'm wondering if to wrap this up today, I can ask you to do something hard because I, I think we've taken you in with, with love and, and folks here love you and care about you. But I wonder if it's been a safe thing to not know some of the dark side of the story of how you've encountered racism in your life. Can, can we wrap it up with a story of how, to, so the folks will know how real this is, that somebody that they love has encountered something so dark and ugly what what is your story? Uh, it may not be mine, but my brother's. Okay. Um, okay. Growing up, my father once he taught him to drive, told him two things: when you get pulled over by a police officer, never leave, take your hands off, ten and two, mm. and never turn around. Always be looking straight forward, because if you moved in any direction, you would end up getting shot. So my brothers never. Moved when they got pulled over. You ask permission to get your wallet out your back pocket. And you always use the hand they can see. Because it was so easy to be a target. And so, it's, for me, I've been pulled over by a police officers who asked me, what was I doing out at night? I'm 40 years old. <laughs> yeah. Pulling me over, asking me, what am I doing out at 930 at night? One time he thought I was by myself. The kids were sleeping on the back seat. The second time I had my practice call on because I was coming from a funeral or a death. Anyway, I had my collar on. And when that flashlight hit, oh, I'm sorry, he left me alone. Why? I didn't do anything. And I learned later there were several cops just pulling women over who were, quote, unquote, by themselves. We have to be smart or as the scripture says, wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. I have encountered bad cops. I've encountered good ones. But it's what the culture teaches is what, how we react. I grew up teaching my boys the same thing. Be mindful that when all of y'all are in the car together, police only see young men. They don't know that all of you go to college. All they see. <laughs> is four young men in a car. And they may not think you're supposed to be in that car, depending on what type of car it is. And that's the reality. If anybody, if you talk to any person of color who has raised boys, you're going to hear us tell the same story. Because of the, the cultural fear of men of color. Lord knows, thank you, I didn't raise both of mine, they didn't got to their 30s. But I may, I'm one of the few women who have, can say that. All of us can't say that. Because the culture has already put a twist that all black men are bad. Yet they don't know them. 
The hard question is, where did that fear come from? And why is it still four generations in, we're still perpetuating that same fear? Mm. Mm. That's the question I won't answer. <laughs> when are we going to cut that life, cut that cord, so it doesn't go into the next generation? My granddaughter's <laughs> generation, because she's about to be... Finishing high school, what is she going to say? The treatment of males when they get ready to graduate 12 months from now. It's a hard question, but it starts with ourselves. Why are we fearful of a certain group of people? I tell folks, I can be fearful of all two-legged men, but there's a reason. But if I operate on that fear, I'll stay inside of my house. I'll never come out. So do you let the fear dictate your life, or do you let faith dictate your behavior and not your fear? Wow. Well, one of the threads that has gone through our conversation today is to have conversation. And I'm guessing that knowing you, you would welcome anybody in for conversation, no matter how indelicate they might think their questions are. Would that be correct? Correct. All right. I appreciate that about you. Thank you. I can't you. help you with your awareness unless you're willing to ask the question. So don't be afraid to ask a question, even if you think it might be the wrong question. Ask it anyway. Yeah. 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 I got that from her. Yeah. <laughs> and Carol, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for well. inviting me, Pastor Evans. I appreciate being part of the conversation. And this conversation must continue. Yes, Pastor. I would like for you to look for on our website a list of Sources, if you want to educate yourself on how the Methodist Church looks at racism, uh, I will be giving Mr. Fish, Mr. Greg, those sources. Um, but I will bring up um, the thing. Look at just look and see what you need to change in your immediate circle that will make a difference for the generation that is coming behind you. Start there, but it has to start with you. Because the only person I can change is the person in the mirror. I can't change the person that's next to me, but I can change the one that is in the mirror. Amen. Wow. And uh, folks, everything else just seems trivial in comparison, so we'll just say simply thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. You've been listening to the stories of the 116 from our studio at First United Methodist Church in downtown Peoria, Illinois. You can find the show notes or contact us with your questions and comments through our website at www.fumcpeoria.org.